It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome into the Pipeline Podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo. We have a great podcast this week. We're going to be joined by Louisville Junior standout pitcher slash first baseman, maybe the number one pick in next month's draft. That's Brendan McKay. He's going to join us. Talk to him about, of course, playing on both sides of the the game as far as pitching and also hitting home runs. We'll get his thoughts on that stuff. We're going to also talk about Hunter Green, and that's where I want to start because Jim has an article up on MLBPipeline.com right now about Hunter Green historically. Is he the best high school right-handed pitcher ever? And I think, Jim, I'll start by saying the consensus is not quite, right? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, he'd be on the short list of the best high school right-handers of all time. I mean, I think he's probably, you know, the nature of this is is that it seems like there's more hype and interest in the draft with each coming year. Um, And I think because of that and the fact he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated and he's you know, got a chance to be the first high school righty ever to go number one overall in the draft, although it's more of kind of a, oddity that it hasn't happened in any kind of, you know, hardline rule that they shouldn't, I think there's this perception that he might be the, the best ever. You know, the Sports Illustrated cover line is that Hunter Green is a star baseball needs, and he's very, very good, and I think it'd be, I think you'd be fair if you said that he might have an electric arm as any high school righty ever and generate, you know, unbelievable velocity as easy as any high school righty ever, and he might be... He probably is the most athletic of the guys who would be in that discussion, but I don't think he's quite – he's not number one. And the guys who – you know, I talked to a lot of veteran scouts about this. I think the separator that keeps him from being number one is he has, depending on who you talk to, a below average to mediocre present breaking ball right now. And when you talk about guys like Josh Beckett, who would be kind of the consensus pick, or Kerry Wood or Dwight Gooden, these guys just had hammers, and that's kind of the separator, I think, why why a lot of veteran scouts would not quite put Hunter Green up that high. Now, Jonathan, while the secondary stuff right now is average or below average, I guess the the bright side for, for people that are thinking about taking him, number one, is the fact that he's such a good athlete. There, there's a thought that while that stuff's not there now, once he's focused on pitching and not playing shortstop and, and hitting anymore, that stuff could come very quickly, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and depending on who you talk to, they've seen you know, a better breaking ball and even at times a, a solid changeup. And I think because of the athleticism, uh, there is the, the possibility of them, of all the, of those pitches, getting better as well as his over, overall command. Which is already pretty good, you know, con- considering. And I think, you know, I love these historical pieces by and large, but it is kind of difficult to compare eras. Uh, there's so much more showcase baseball now. I think you have a better sense of how Hunter Green stands out in relation to all of this year's class. But, you know, Josh Beckett or Dwight Gooden uh, didn't have a summer's worth of stuff to 
uh, against high, high level of competition to, to compare himself to. So it's not quite apples and oranges, but it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's off, can be awfully difficult to compare one error to the next, I think. That's a yeah, great I, point. I think it definitely Go is ahead. apples and oranges because one of the things that's interesting when you look at this stuff is the Raider guns are just so much different, too. Uh, you know, back when, you know, Kerry Wood was thrown in the mid-90s, you know, with the radar guns we have today, that might register more as upper 90s. And you're right. I mean, that's another reason I think Hunter Green has gotten as much of claim as he has, is he's shown pretty impressive stuff time and time again. You know, another favor, another thing in his favor is that he's so young. You know, he won't be 18 until August. He might be, I didn't look up everybody's birthday in the article I wrote, but he might be the youngest of the guys who were mentioned, except for Bob Feller going back to the mid-30s who signed as a 16-year-old. But... You know, the, the interesting thing with Green, like, like I, was, I was saying about the breaking ball, is, you know, I've had some guys, I, I was kind of shocked. I had a couple guys put a 30 on the 28 scale in his present breaking ball. And while he does have time, you know, the time is on his side because he's so young and he's so athletic, you generally don't improve your breaking ball by more than a grade. You know, either you can spin it or not. So if you're somebody who thinks he has a 30 breaking ball or 30 curve ball, you're not thinking he's ever going to have really, you know, maybe even an average curve ball and probably has to go to a slider. And I think most people like the slider a little bit better than the curve. But, you know, I've also talked to people who would 45 or 50 the, the curve ball and slider and think it will be plus down the line. And he is advanced for his age. And the command is, is very good and is better than most of the guys on this list. So it, it's just a, a very interesting uh, debate. Uh, and we'll see if he, if he goes number one overall uh, in a couple, uh, I guess, six weeks or so or five and a half weeks from now. You know, the interesting thing is there's a number of these righties who could have gone number one, and it was just kind of circumstances why they didn't. I mean, Josh Beckett, who, you know, we, again, we said was probably the best high school righty ever. He's the consensus choice of the scouts I talked to. Would have gone number one, I think, in most drafts. There was talk he could have gone number one in 1998, <laughs> except he was a junior in high school, not a senior. And then in 1999, Josh Hamilton, who's as tooled up as just about any high school player ever, uh, you know, and has had a very good career after some, some troubles early on with, with drugs, he went number one. If you didn't have Josh Hamilton in the draft, Beckett would have gone number one. Um, you know, the next year, and in 2000, I think the consensus top prospect for most people was probably Matt Harrington, um, and there were signability issues, and a lot of teams were looking to cut deals at the top of what was considered a weak draft, and he dropped to number seven, didn't sign, and, and never played in the minors despite getting drafted five times, and way back when, in 1977, Bill Gulkson was the, the, the top prospect, consensus top prospect, and a, a local guy for the White Sox, a Chicago area guy from Peoria, but the White Sox didn't have any money, and they signed Harold Baines for $32,500, which was a fraction of what the number one overall picks got the year before and the year after, and Goldson got more than twice that. So that was a financial decision, too. But, you know, we'll see what happens. I think Jonathan and I will talk about mock drafts later. Both are leaning to thinking right now that Hunter Green probably won't go number one. Very much in the mix, but probably won't go number one, at least not based on what we know today. Yeah, and if he doesn't go number one, it's probably because Brendan McKay will go number one. And both of those guys also interesting because they can both do it on both sides of the ball. Obviously, shortstop and, and power hitter as far as Green is concerned. And McKay, a first baseman who can maybe play the outfield as well and, and plenty of power there for the Louisville junior. And we are going to talk to Brendan McKay. But before we switch to that, 
We want to take a moment to tell you about the Cut Forecast. The Cut Forecast is the podcast from the staff of MLB.com's Cut Force section, which focuses on the lighter side of baseball. If you've made it this far into our podcast, we really think you'll enjoy that one. It'll make you laugh. You might even learn something about baseball dogs or ballpark food. Last week's episode featured an interview with Brewers beat reporter Adam McCalvey about all things Eric Thames and what it feels like inside one of those racing sausage costumes. If that sounds like something you're into, search Cut Forecast, C-U-T, number four, C-A-S-T, in iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts, and click subscribe on with the show now, and we are excited to be joined by Brendan McKay, Jr. for Louisville, the number two ranked team in the country right now. And to sum up Brendan McKay, the baseball player this season, you look at last week, and Brendan, Tuesday you hit four home runs in a game. Friday you strike out 12 batters over eight, and that's really all the talk is, is your ability to do both those things. My first question for you is, when it comes down to it, I'm not going to ask you what you want to do at the professional level, but what do you get more of a thrill from, hitting a home run or coming up with a big strikeout in a big spot? Honestly, I've, I've been asked that question multiple times, and it's it's hard to come up with a specific answer because you get both the, the same adrenaline pump and the same uh, excitement, you know, hitting uh, a home run or like a, a big hit in a certain situation or striking out guys and in a crucial situation, so that's tough to to pick one uh, in in that situation. Brendan, Jim Callis here, and uh, the first thing I wanted to ask you is how difficult is it to to block out the draft when you're in your draft year, and your case is a little bit different than most, where you have a chance to to possibly be the number one overall pick, and if not, you're going to go at the top of the draft. I mean, how much, I mean, i got to imagine it's impossible to totally block it all out, but but how much do you pay attention to that stuff, what's been swirling around you this spring? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously tough in, in today's age where you've got social media and everything that you're connected to where, you know, you don't even have to go on it. Somebody can, you know, mention you in a tweet or tag you in something and it pops up right on your phone and it's kind of hard to not go look at it because you got to, you know, clear that notification or whatever. But uh, really just, you know, you could read whatever comes up or uh, just look at it, see what people are saying, but you don't take anything, uh, you know, too hard or too in-depth to what people are saying. You just take it for what it is, read it, and then, put it aside once once you're done with it and just move on and do uh do do whatever you got to do to you know play your play your game or just get prepared to do your do your stuff well for our part then uh, jim and i apologize for putting you uh, in the top pick for our first mock drafts uh, the, that went up uh, the other day so sorry um <laughs> but uh, how much does it help you if you were just pitching and you had to wait a week I would imagine some of that stuff could creep into your mind a little bit more. Does the fact that you you do both things help sort of keep you focused on the field? Because even if you're done pitching on Friday, you're still in the lineup Saturday and Sunday and Tuesday. Yeah, it's it's helps a lot. You know, you got to push things past yourself quickly. You know, playing a game on Friday at you know six or seven o'clock at night, and then you got an early game at one o'clock the next day. You got to you know. If you if you have a bad game or a good game, you know, do whatever you need to do for those next couple hours, you know, up until you fall asleep or whatever. And then when you wake up, it's a whole new day. You know, clear your mind, clear your slate, and just get ready to play uh, that next day or whatever. 
Brendan, I, I, you know, I'm sure another question you've get at, you asked a lot is, is which you would prefer doing professionally, whether it would be hitting or pitching. I'm going to ask you a slightly different version of that. Has it entered your mind that you'd like to try to do both possibly? And, and if you had any discussions with teams yet, when, when you've, you've met here and there with scouts about possibly doing both, how, how has that been approached? Yeah, that, that's one of the questions that – like one of the very first questions that I've ever been asked in any uh, you know, scout meeting or any time any type of meeting like that, they always go, you know, we know you're talented at both, but which one do you want to do? Or if you had to pick one, and it's tough to pick one more from the fact that you don't want to give one up because uh, say, you know, in my case, you know, if I – just stick to pitching. I think I get a little bit bored just throwing one day a week and not being involved in any outcomes of the game unless, say, for some reason it goes to, you know, deep into extra innings and they got to call some guy off the bench and it, it so happens to be you to pinch hit or something. And it would be a little different than being a hitter and playing four, five, six days a week. Brendan, I, I live here in Pittsburgh, and I remember, you know, when you were – coming uh, out, of, out of high school in this area, and, and, and people are talking about you, obviously not quite in this neck of the woods of the draft, and some of that is because you had your your mind set on going to Louisville, but clearly you've evolved and developed as a player on both sides of the ball. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the player you were at a high school compared to, to uh, the young man you are now and, and the, the differences three years of Louisville, uh, you know, what, what that's meant to you as a baseball player? Yeah, I mean, in high school, um, you're more focused on, you know, working to get that, you know, the scholarship offers and just trying to figure out where you're going to school. So you're not really focused on becoming, you know, the best player you could be where once you get to a school, you know, you're set for three years uh, until you can get drafted again or even, you know, if it happens that you're your one year, two years where you're draft eligible as a freshman or a sophomore, you know, you put in that work at that time to get better, get bigger, get stronger, and just become a better person and a better player as well with all the help you can get from coaches, other players, other teammates, uh, professional guys that come back. If you're in a program where a lot of guys uh, like Louisville, they come back over the fall and into the early spring before they head off to, um, to spring training to get better, pick up things from them, and just get to know about the game a little bit more. Brendan, how important is it to you personally, and I guess on a team level too, to get to the College World Series this year? I mean, Louisville's had one of the best programs in the country probably for the last decade or so. That They've been to Omaha three times, uh, continual national you know, championship contender. But I was, I was talking to Corey Ray in spring training, and he still seems ticked off that you guys got upset by UC Irvine last year. How important is it to, to get back to Omaha and maybe win that first national championship for the Cardinals? Yeah, it's obviously important. You know, we we look at we look at it every day. You have the the College World Series sign on, on our wall that has the years that they've gone, and with the the teams we've had in 15 and 16, and then and then now, I think we've had you know some of the best quality of players and some of the best you know seasons we've probably ever had, and I think that it it's kind of upsetting that you know you have all those guys, you have that success on the field and then you know you get up to that point where you're on the brink of you know making it there and uh you know a couple 
plays here and there, a couple bad innings. It just really sucks that, you know, you're putting all that work and you're so close and you had all those guys and then it just disappears from you in a moment. Well, Brendan, thank you so much for taking some time with us to talk about all that stuff. And certainly good luck the rest of the way with Louisville. I know you have Notre Dame coming up this weekend and then the rest of the way in the ACC and hopefully a long run to Omaha after that. Thanks for taking a few minutes for us. No problem. Thank you. Great stuff from Brendan McKay there. And that brings us right into the mock draft, the first one of the spring for you guys. It's up on MLBPipeline.com. And you took it picks 1 through 15. And the amazing thing, I think, is that you both use the same 15 players uh, in different orders, obviously, but not all the time. A lot of the same order. And that includes the number one overall pick in which you both have Brendan McKay going to the Minnesota Twins. So let's start with that. And we know he can hit. We know he can pitch. We just talked to him about the fact that he, he loves to do both. I'll start with you, Jonathan. What do the Twins want him to do? Yep. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty much my answer. I mean, honestly, I think that's still up for debate. Uh, I, I, you know, they're, they're still talking it over. And, you know, he continues to do things on both sides where you're like, oh, well, maybe that will make a statement. You know, he goes out and hits four homers in a game, uh, as you pointed out, Tim. And you think, well, you know, maybe that'll tip the scales one way. And then he goes out and strikes out. It doesn't. Well, I don't know. Uh, you know, if, if I had to guess, and I'm guessing, uh, if he goes number one overall, I, I, I say it's going to be as a pitcher. But I think that this first summer, uh, he may get a chance to do uh, a little bit of both with a little bit of a hybrid approach. He's not going to pitch a lot that first summer anyway. Uh, so he could pitch a little bit and then hit on a couple of the off days uh, just to sort of uh, keep his uh, feet wet in both areas. How about you, Jim? Where do you see him ending up? I agree with Jonathan. I don't think the Twins know. I mean, they don't have to figure that out if he's their guy for another six weeks or so. And I agree. I mean, I've had scouts kind of suggest what Jonathan said there, too, that he's going to pitch enough at Louisville where he probably won't, even if you want him as a pitcher, he probably won't pitch more than 15 or so innings this summer. So you could let him make like a three-inning start, take a day off, DH, maybe play a little first base for three days, and, and then repeat, and you could do that after he signs. I think it's it's still very much up in the air, and it's funny because I talk to people. I mean, Jonathan and I both do when we're doing my drafts and doing our stuff, and I've talked to guys. I mean, like, well, you guys saw my overview story I did with the, when we re-released the expanded top 100. <laughs> and I had a scouting director who won't pick quite high enough to get him say that he would take him 100% as a hitter. He thinks on the free agent market this is the type of bat that you'd give a $200 million contract to, which I'm sure whoever um, signs Brendan McKay will appreciate that comment. Um, although the bonus pools will keep the bonus down a bit. And, and I've talked to guys. I mean, if it was me, not that the Twins or whoever signs Brendan McKay will ask me, I would take him as a hitter because I think the ceiling's higher. I think you're looking at a potential 320, 25 home run guy. As a hitter, he might be the best bat in the draft. And the exciting thing is, I think whichever way he goes, the ceiling is going to be higher when he only focuses on one because he's never done that. So once he devotes all his attention, either hitting or pitching, which he'll probably do down the line. He theoretically could be better at both. Now, all that said, it's harder to find left-handed pitchers than it is first baseman. I think as a left-handed pitcher, he probably has the highest floor in this draft. I think he might be the first player from the draft to reach the big leagues if he's a pitcher. Um, certainly the first starting pitcher to reach the big leagues if he's a pitcher. 
and it's pretty pretty good. You know, it's not overwhelming stuff, but I think you, you have a very good chance to have a number three starter as a left-handed pitcher. So, I, I you know, and, and you talk to people. I've had some who are adamant, oh, this guy's 100% a hitter. And then I've talked to other people who are adamant it's 100% a pitcher for them. Um, so I, I, don't think, I don't think there's any consensus, and I don't think anybody knows. And, and here's where I'll drop my standard line about how there hasn't been a guy this good both ways who could go in the top five or ten picks both ways since Dave Winfield in 1973. I, I think I'm contractually obligated to mention that every time I discuss Brennan McKay. So I, I've done that now. All right, it's good that you were able to uh, uh, get that in there for sure. Now, one thing I think fans would love to see, and I think maybe teams are afraid to do this and, and just because of the, the risk involved, but if he does end up with the Minnesota Twins, I mean, how amazing would it be to have a guy who could go out there every fifth day and start for you and then maybe in those middle four days once or twice DH for you and get some at-bats in the lineup? I mean, that would be great, obviously, that that's extra wear and tear on a body over the course of a long season where you're making 30, 35 starts as well. But certainly it would, it would be fascinating. It would be exciting for baseball to have a guy that was capable of doing that, but maybe then you're limiting his highest end on, on either of the two talents by not letting him focus solely on it. But that's something for down the road. We still have uh, over a month before we even know if he's going number one or not. All right. Number two, you both have, Hunter Green, and we've already talked about him plenty on this edition of the podcast, so I'll skip over the Reds taking Hunter Green, and let's go big picture a little bit, because I mentioned that you both have the same 15 players in this mock draft. Why is that, Jonathan? Why why is there that much consensus in the first half of the first round? Because thinking back on mock drafts of the past, I can't remember you guys agreeing that much. Well, there's time. Still, you know, for us to get to the point where we're no longer agreeing, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know that it's consensus as much as a general feeling among those teams of a, a lack of alternatives. Uh, that doesn't mean that there aren't names that are sort of quote unquote backup names right now that might come to the fore uh, a little bit more. Uh, you know, I know that both Jim and I. I had Missouri State third baseman Jake Berger as a guy who could figure it into the top 15, but neither of us put him in there for right now. Carlos Bat, who has a good track record of, of performing, I could see him easily going in the top 15. But I know that when I was talking to teams, uh, especially as he got to, say, 10 to 15, uh, you know, say if I was uh, arbitrarily uh, talking to the Angels at 10, I'd have someone from the Angels say, well, we only have nine names, really, you know, and, and on down, the Pirates are 12. We only have like 10, 11 names, you know. Invariably, one of the names that they see is sort of likely to be gone ahead of them will filter down to them because there's always a surprise or two. But there just isn't a large group of names to draw from for the top half of the first round. And I also think, too, that when, when we were putting these box drafts together, you hear that a team might be looking – for a college player versus a high school player. And there's, there's no deep demographic in this year's draft. Or, you know, you're here, I'm hearing a lot of college bats, Jonathan, kind of in that 6 to 8 or 6 to 10 range. Well, <laughs> there's only two or three college bats you're looking at there. You know, it's not like there's six or seven candidates, and it makes it tough. So you kind of say, well, okay, if this team's getting a college bat, then it's got to be A, B, or C, and I'll give this team A, and then that leaves B for the next team and C for the team picking two spots later. And, it's just it's a 
I, I, I don't even know what – I don't really think there's particular strength in this draft. We may see more first basemen draft in the top 10 or 12 picks. We may see three of them uh, than usual, but there, there's no real area of strength. So if you kind of – you know, and in the middle, at this point, we're, we're going a lot based off of, you know, gossip and hearsay, you know, Team X wants a college position player. Well, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're going along that line of thinking with a specific team, you know, you're really only choosing between two or three names each time. So I think that's why we have the consensus. I, I do want to say, Jonathan, I think that the, at the end of last year, I want to say I, I don't remember the exact numbers on our, our final detailed like mock draft with explanations, which we wrote the night before the draft. But I do remember that draft was extreme. Those mock drafts were extremely similar, and we don't compare notes because we want to. You know, I think we both want to beat the other guy, so we don't tell each other what we're hearing. And then we kind of did what we do the day of the draft, which is make calls. And I want to say around noon, we were both kind of standing pat. And then around two p.m., we were like, "Ah!" I remember looking over at you in the the Chris Rose Kevin Millar office saying, I think I might be tearing up the top of my mock. And you're like, yeah, I think I might be too. So we both revised our mocks, made a bunch of changes, and we had the top eight picks exactly the same. And we got all eight of them right going into the draft. So I know we talked to a lot of the same guys, but it, it, it's crazy how similar our mocks turn out, considering that we don't compare any notes at all when we're putting them together. So does all that mean that this isn't a very deep draft, or am I reading in too much into that? I think it's not deep at the top i think there isn't the top end talent that you'd like to see i yeah there's always good players as you get deeper in the draft do you feel the same way jonathan i think it's more light on the top end than on the depth right not as much uh elite impact talent uh, and i feel like this has somewhat been this way the last couple of years but this year is i think uh, right now uh seems a little more dramatic in, in that where maybe you'd rather be picking 20th than up near the top, just in terms of value based on what it's going to cost you and that, and that sort of thing. And uh, The difference between who's going to go, say, 11th and who's going to go 30th may not be that great. But I think there is some depth to be had later on, which is why if there are teams picking up near the top who have multiple picks, you might start hearing the, the uh, Ian Anderson, uh, you know, to, to borrow from the, the point that you made earlier, Jim, you know, that kind of a, of a deal, not that people didn't like Ian Anderson, but like maybe save a little money up top because no one like wows you. And then it allows you to go after some, some really good talent that you wouldn't otherwise be able to afford if you didn't save money up top. So you might start seeing some of that because uh, this is not a, a top heavy draft at all. Is this one of those drafts where it would be really cool if we could see teams trade picks because of that maybe you'd see a team with a later pick make that trade and, and try to move up into that limited uh elite group at the top Jonathan, I, you know, I, I know you've cool. talked about the the trading of picks a lot before in the past Hello? I, I mean I, th- I think i mean i'm always for that i think right. that would be exciting and cool you know as long as you had some way to uh monitor it uh, you know there's a fear that Teams are just going like, to somehow punt the draft by trading away all the draft picks. Um, and we can discuss the, the merits uh, of that argument uh, another time. But uh, I, I think it would be fantastic. But, yeah, this would be a draft where uh, you might see uh, on either side of that argument, teams may, maybe want to do, you know, do it. You don't 
you're not thrilled with what you have on, uh, at the top, so maybe you want to trade down. Conversely, there's not as much great high-end talent, but maybe there's that one guy you really want to be able to get, so you would trade up. So uh, I, I think that would be a lot of fun, sure. Jim, when you look at... It would at, be fun. I, I was just going to throw in. I would say it would be fun, but I also don't think we'd necessarily see a lot of trading because of the bonus pool system. You can, in a sense, in essence, trade down... Uh, without actually making a trade, you know, like with the Ian Anderson thing, where you take a guy who you're going to sign for significantly below the, the value of that pick, and then that allows you to, you know, essentially, you know, get more value because you can spend more with a later pick. So I don't, I don't necessarily think we'd be seeing teams trade up and down the draft as much. I think it would be interesting where you might see more you know, contenders and non-contenders making trades. Let's say there's a team that had some free agents to be, you know, like the Royals. That's been talked about a lot. Let's say the Royals by the beginning of June, it was, you know, apparent that, you know, this probably wasn't going to be a year where they went to the playoffs. Then maybe they trade Eric Cosmer for somebody's first-round pick. Um, But, yeah, I'd be for the trade. But the the bonus pull system, I think, in a way, would kind of, you know, keep the damper on trades a little bit. Because I can, if there's a guy I like, I can still take him early and then use the savings to, to, to get you know, more talent later. One more real quick question from each of you. I want your thoughts. Just confidence level. When you look at your top 15 here in a mock draft, confidence, and I'll start with you, Jonathan, that in a month from now, the actual draft looks anything like what you guys have come up with right now. I have extreme confidence that it will look very little like what we put out this, this week. Now, um, will it be those 15 names in the top 15? Probably not exactly, but I have confidence that it will be a lot of the same names, uh, just not in the order that we have it right now. Jim? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, you know, I mean, even now, I'd say, you know, do we have the top players going at the top of our mock draft? Yes, we do. But the teams don't know. Like, like for instance, the, the Twins – when I say they have no idea, it, you know, I mean, they've narrowed down the candidates. But if you ask the Twins today, if the Twins took a vote, if, if you could give the Twins truth serum and you had the three or four people or however many people are going to be the, the, the people actually making that decision and you got them to tell you who the guy was today, there's no guarantee at all that it's going to be the same guy six weeks from now. You know, and financial considerations could play a role in the pick, too. If And we don't know signability yet, but let's say – they thought McKay, you know, Brendan McKay and Hunter Green and Kyle Wright, who seemed to be the big three, were all comparable. And two of those guys want $6 million and one of them would take five, and they think they could get another player, you know, and use that extra million dollars later in the draft. They might go that route as well, and it's just too early to know the, the financial ramifications. All right, well, we will keep you up to date on the draft as we get closer and closer. Just a little over a month to go until uh, it all gets started in Secaucus, New Jersey at MLB Network in early to mid-June. All right, guys, thank you so much. This has been another great Pipeline podcast. We want to thank Brennan McKay for joining us. Definitely check out the mock draft on MLBPipeline.com and join us here again next week. For Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo, I'm Tim McMaster. Thanks for tuning in to the Pipeline podcast.